0: This is Purple Radio On Demand.
1: Welcome back to the wonderful world of Chalkboard Ultra. I'm Sam, and joining me, as always, is Louis. Hello, glad to be back. Good stuff. I hope you're all in a merry mood, because this is going to be an encore of what we did in our live session, for those of you that were there.
0: The session itself was on the problems with Secret Santa and we felt that it was such a fun topic to discuss that we better record it and allow you to listen to it.
1: Because we noticed that Saturday morning, 9.30 a.m., not a lot of people would be awake for that. I think there was actually a Math Society bar called the night before, and so, yeah, not many people would be tuning into the radio there.
0: It was also freezing. It was freezing cold. Do you remember what happened? You made a tea. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Louis came to my house we could walk down to the studio, and I was making my tea and like, oh, look, I got this really cool uh, keep cup and then we walked outside and this boiling hot tea, cause I was late as usual, I was late. And I put this boiling water into the, the cup, put the lid on, we set off on our ways. It was snowy, it was icy. And then I slipped like on the drive outside of my house and the top of the keep cup just shot out like a rocket. And then I spilled the tea all over the ground.
0: Could it have been the difference in pressure? <laughs> i have talked to, talk to very, adam about that one. very hot on the inside very cold on the outside the newly principle right I'm trying to give you a warning don't go out it's too cold no
1: but it's raining on the way here though was raining on the way here did not enjoy that but anyway what we want to do is do an encore for the live session which as louis said it was a lot of fun so here we go the problems with secret santa <laughs> you enjoy that new intro i think i did (laughs) let's get on so well the setup of secret santa needs almost no introduction but we should probably give one anyway because it's got quite an interesting history
0: the exact origins of secret santa are a bit unclear but its current form most likely emerged in the u.s probably from a philanthropist called larry dean stewart and he would go out handing gifts to the needy completely anonymously The practice is also known as Kris Kringle in some countries, taking its name from Christkindle, who, like Santa, is a Christmas gift giver. There is also Amigo Secret in Spain, Portugal, and Latin America, literally meaning secret friend.
1: I love that. But it's best played with uni students who don't have enough of a weekly budget to buy gifts for all of their friends, but can probably do a heartfelt gift to one person for, I don't know, reasonably cheap. Either that, or in an office or workplace with lots of people that you're acquainted with but not on a level to get them something personable.
0: Normally everyone writes their name down on a piece of paper, folds it up and places it into a hat. Then each person has a go at fishing a name out at random and then it lets them know who they've got to buy a present for. This is, as the name suggests, a secret and shouldn't be revealed at any point in the process.
1: I think traditionally no one's allowed to reveal their chosen person even after the gifts have been given out. Which is different to how I've always played it. My favourite thing was to figure out who everyone had after it all done and make the links, make the chains and see all the, all the cycles. I really like seeing the the full picture.
0: What would your nightmare gift be, Sam? Nightmare gift?
1: Mm. Well, as I've always done Secret Santa in a group of friends, like, you, you know your friends, you know to get them something personal and, and that's nice. And I think gifts that are food related, like chocolate... Or sweets. While they're nice to have, I think it's a little bit of a of a cop-out. It's like, oh, uh, uh yeah, sorry. I, I didn't know what to get you, so I got you chocolate. And like everyone likes chocolate. So get something that you know they they, they wouldn't think of. Well, then no, there's what it is. What about you?
0: What's your nightmare gift? Socks. I've got too many socks. <laughs> so That's if, true. I love socks. And if people get me socks as a gift, I think, oh thank you. Let me just add it to the big pile. Uh <laughs> I like some, my funky sock collection. I
1: had a friend in first year who always wore like cereal socks. He had like Coco Pop socks, Rice Krispie socks. And then he went through a phase of not wearing them. And he gave them all to me. And I love that. So I have cereal socks. Right now, what well, are my socks right now? Oh, they're just black because... Uh, Let me check my... What's your socks? Oh, man, a nice woolly green one. Get your feet off the table, Louis! To to Rachel, the feet were not on the table. you are joking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. It reminds me of my geography teacher in secondary school who had a collection of every gift a student had ever got him, like as an end-of-year gift or a Christmas gift or whatever. I'm pretty sure they all had a map of some kind on it. Like, there was a mug with a map, a pair of socks with a map on it, a globe. It never stopped for him. It was,
0: uh, it was insane. I'll make a note to myself then. If a friend studies geography, I'll buy them a map for Christmas.
1: No, exactly. I mean, it's the same for, for maths if there's extended family members who have not seen in a while, they know I study maths. They'll just get me like a pie tie or they'll give me some, some math. They'll give me some dice. Although dice? I, yeah. I've lost them now. I don't know where they've gone. Who knows? Louie. <laughs> Terrible gifts aside then, let's try to understand what Secret Santa is all about and what
0: flaws there are. There aren't necessarily any strict rules for Secret Santa, but there are two fundamental ideas. The first being each player is anonymous throughout the process. And second, each person should have an equal probability of being selected by another person. And clearly the hat scenario fails on both accounts. Because let's say the group of
1: people put their names in the hat and it's passed around each person drawing a name. What happens if you draw your own name? The most obvious suggestion is to put it back in and redraw
0: the next name. But there are two obvious drawbacks to this. If you're the second to last person, and you pick up your own name and redraw, then the last person is forced to pick your own. Yeah. So the whole anonymity idea is ruined. Or if the last person picks out their own name, they'd have to swap it with someone else. But then there's the correspondence between the two and the secret's out. Awful. One could argue that the only fair solution
1: then is everyone scrap the current listings and redraw. But that's a shame, because this actually has quite a good chance of happening. If 20 people are in this game,
0: then there's a 4% chance the last person will pick out their own name. If you really want to put the percentages on it, you could argue that there's even more issues when considering the third to last person and the fourth to last. What this tells us is that the chance of picking your own name is not uniform and solely depends on your position in the circle to draw the names. Well, what do you mean by that? So let's give an example, a nice little scenario. Ooh, we're in a festive mood. Why don't we take the three wise men, Melchior, Jasper and Balthazar, They have names? Yeah, of course they've got names.
1: Of course they've got names. I just didn't know they had them. They're not really referenced anywhere. Well, perhaps not. They're already in their own gift-giving palaver. How about our beloved recurring characters in all of maths? Alice, Bob, and Christmas Eve?
0: Okay, let's just say Alice, Bob, Eve. (laughs) Sure. Well, we'll do it in that order. Alice first, then Bob, then Eve. If we think about the basket of names for Alice, we know that if she picks out her own name, then she'll simply replace it in the basket. Clearly, there are only two names Alice can pick from. So the Secret Santa can actually work.
1: Yeah. And that's either Bob or Eve, giving us a 50-50 chance for either case. So let's study one of them. Suppose that Alice
0: draws Bob. Sure. Now it's Bob's go. And since his name has already been drawn out, he can either draw out Alice or Mm -hmm. Eve's name. And they have a probability one half again.
1: Yeah. But if Alice picked Bob and Bob's picked Alice then there's only one name left for Eve to draw, which is their own name. And that, my friend,
0: is a failed arrangement.
1: And now they'd have to start from scratch, picking out new names. So that doesn't work. In the other case, which Bob picks out Eve, then we're okay, right? Because the final
0: name for Eve to pick out is Alice's and that's a complete event. The event that Eve picks out Alice's name has probably won. And that's if Alice drew Bob to begin with. We can still work through this if Alice has chosen Eve instead, but it's not as interesting.
1: Well, sure, because now there are two names for Bob to choose from, but one of them is his own. So he must have that Bob chooses Alice and Eve chooses Bob. And this has
0: probability one. Yes, and so all in all, we have two successful branches of Secret Santa. A 50% chance of the Eve-Alice-Bob choice, a 25% chance of the Bob-Eve-Alice choice, and the other 25 that fail. This isn't a good enough
1: example, really, because it's obvious in the three-person case, if you know who you have, then there's only one option for who the other two people have, and sequence are spilling out all over the place. So, yeah, it's best done with a large group of people. What fascinates me, though, in this three-person case, is that Alice is twice as likely to draw Eve than she is for Bob,
0: even though it seems to be a 50-50 split.
1: And this is what you're saying, right? The probabilities are not
0: uniform. That comes down to what happened after the first name is drawn. Half the time it succeeds, the other half, it fails.
1: Now, the exact probabilities alter depending on however many people you play with. But the principle still stands, and the flaws are evident. How about, instead, we wait until everyone's picked out a name from the hat
0: and decide then if you want to redraw or not after everyone looks at the same time? Well, that's arguably worse. The setup has a 37% chance of failing and a 5% chance of failing three times in a row. In which, by that point, everyone's going to be less keen about buying presents
1: and... We'll probably give up on the whole idea. What we're looking for in this scenario is a derangement. Effectively a type of permutation
0: where nobody will end up with their own name. Although we could be a bit more precise for those mathematically curious. Ugh, go ahead. Consider a list of names where the position of each name has been recorded. A derangement of the list is where no name is in its original position. Note it doesn't have to be named. It could also be numbers as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And if you do a little bit of math, you can see there are six possible ways to arrange Alice, Bob and Eve in a Secret Santa setup. But of these, we found that there are only two ways that this leads to a workable deranged draw. Because the other permutations end with
0: someone picking their own name, and, you know, that's where our problem lies. The area of math that discusses derangement, permutations, graph theory and other counting problems is called discrete mathematics. Now this is unlike continuous mathematics, such as calculus analysis, which I know that Sam enjoys. Oh yes. And these help to describe systems that are smooth. The reason why I mentioned counting problems is that any discrete set of objects can be labeled with integers, essentially counting them. You can label each person in the secret center by a number rather than a name. This adds a level of anonymity because the numbers are attached to names only later on in the process. But there's some discrepancy
1: as what is labeled as discrete. Right, because most of the time, discrete mathematics is described less by what's included than by what is excluded, which is all about
0: continuously varying quantities and other related notions. Ah, exclusion. What are you alluding to? Well, recall what we learned in our discrete math module. Three main principles govern counting problems, these being mathematical induction, pigeonholes, and inclusion-exclusion.
1: Ah, right. Let's go through these then.
0: Mathematical induction is,
1: in my eyes, the most profound proof technique. It's, it's really interesting. You have a statement, and you suppose this statement is true for a certain case that's labelled case n. And given the standing information, you can then prove a case n plus 1, the next one up. And if that's true, then you've proven a true case for any integer
0: n. It's, it's fascinating. Think of it like climbing a ladder. If we know we can step on the first rung, and that on the nth rung, we can always step up to the nth plus 1 rung, then we can surely get to every single rung on that ladder, and this is the
1: basis for lots of proof in number theory. Because you want to show a quantity is true for every number you choose. You know, if you have a formula, does that work for the numbers one, two, three? Yes, which means that it works for the numbers 10,000, ten thousand, eleven billion, and four. Okay, but now I want to talk about the pigeonhole principle. Ooh, what a name, isn't it? Just. You can think about this one using envelopes and pigeonholes. If you have, say, five envelopes and you need to distribute them amongst four pigeonholes, then there has to be at least one pigeonhole
0: with more than one envelope. Isn't that obvious, though?
1: Well, often in math you have to define these tedious truths to make your arguments actually logically valid. It just needs to be done. But the lesser known half of the pigeonhole principle is that if you have five envelopes amongst four pigeonholes, there has to be at least two pigeonholes with the same number of envelopes. You've got to have at least one having more than one and at least two having
0: the same number. Ah, but we don't have to relate this to pigeonholes and envelopes. We can say much, much more. So by this principle, we know that there are two residents in, let's say, Newcastle, who have the exact same number of hairs on their head. What? How on earth? As it stands... There are just over 300,000 residents in Newcastle, and the average person in the UK has between 100,000 and 150,000 hairs on their head. So, we can suppose that nobody has more than 250,000. So, no, that's fair, sure. So, by the pigeonhole principle, there are more residents than there are hairs to go around, and thus, two people must have the exact same number of hairs. That
1: is wild. See, see, that's the type of maths that people shy away from because, yes, you can answer this question, but why on earth would you even think of this question? It's no use to anyone. What am I actually doing with that information?
0: Are you going to go to Newcastle at any point?
1: Yeah, this weekend, actually.
0: So maybe get a calculator, start counting people's hair, and... I will lose
1: a lot of friends and a lot of self-respect.
0: So, politely, no. We shouldn't stray too far from our main problem, though. We're interested in derangements. There is a general way to find the number of possible derangements of a list of numbers or names. It uses the principle of inclusion exclusion, sometimes called by its acronym PI. Well, we do like PI here at Chalkboard Ultra. The principle tells us how to calculate the number of possible derangements there are in a given set of objects. So, with Alice, Bob, and Eve, there are three people, there are six possible ways to arrange them, and two possible derangements.
1: If we add in a fourth person, say, I don't know, Dave, We've bumped up to 24 possible Secret Santa arrangements, with only 9
0: derangements. And we could keep going as well, with 44 derangements of 5 objects, 265 derangements of 6. It seems to grow quite large. Is, is there like a limit to the number of derangements you can have? Well, it will always be affected by the number of objects we have, but the proportion of derangements to arrangements tends to be 1 over E for larger and larger numbers.
1: All right. It's that time in the live show where I know people have tuned off because of, I don't know, there's a bit too much maths. But maths and other jargon aside, I'm now going to present to you the secret Santa solutions.
0: Go on then, enlighten us.
1: This first one was presented by Hannah Fry in one of her many interviews with Brady from Numberphile. You begin with however many cards, as there are people. So with 10 people, you need 10 cards. And you draw a line down the middle to kind of split them. The top half of the card will say... You are number four, for example, while the other half on the bottom will say you will buy for number four. Then you shuffle all of these cards to produce an arrangement of ten and then you cut each card down this splitting line and you shift the top cards over by one. And so now it might say you are number four and underneath you will buy for number eight,
0: for example. So everyone ends up with a pair of halves.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that's what Hannah suggested in the interview. But it doesn't exactly work, right? Because if you're all standing in a line and you all move one up, whenever you go to collect the cards, you know that you're buying for the person who stood next to you. And you know what they're buying for the person standing next to them. And similarly, you can work out who's buying for you because they're on the other side. It doesn't really work.
0: So what we need to do is reattach all the halves and then give them another shuffle. That way you can't know the cards on either side and therefore the secret is maintained. Yeah, precisely.
1: And you then have a large sheet with the numbers 1 through 10 and everyone writes down their name next to the corresponding number and this will be done kind of in secret so you don't know who is
0: who. Well, that sounds pretty good. By construction, it ensures there is a derangement of N and the system seems flawless.
1: Yeah, exactly. But then I was thinking again more. One other thing I might point out is that this trick doesn't get you to every derangement of n, right? It can only cycle through permutations that are one move away from a regular permutation. Like physically, this means you can't end up with a cycle. For instance, suppose you're in this 10 group of people. You can use this method to obtain a derangement that is one shift away from any permutation of 10. But what if persons 1, 2, 3, and 4 are in a cycle? That is, 1 has 2, 2 has 3... 3 has 4, 4 has 1. That's still a valid derangement, but it doesn't occur using our method. Ah, so it does have its drawbacks then. Mm-hmm. And many attempts have been made to find a mechanical way to chuck out these derangements. But most of the solutions I've found involve creating a computer algorithm. So this will create a permutation of a string using something called a Fisher-Yates shuffle and then checks if any element in it is in the original position.
0: So isn't that just a
1: trial and error run? I suppose so. I mean, this algorithmic run is the same as what we tried to do earlier with Alice, Bob and Eve, where they all picked out a name and looked at it after everyone had taken their turn. Are these efficient algorithms? Well, absolutely. As you mentioned earlier, the ratio of permutations to derangements tend towards 1 over E for larger and larger values of N, which is roughly 0.3679. And so it's quite likely you obtain a random derangement without much effort, and especially with how fast computers are today, it takes microseconds. Hang on, hang on.
0: 0.3679, 36.7, that's about 37%. I've heard that before. That's the chance of a secret sound of failure with the previous method. Yeah, we've come full circle. But we still have our problem. Surely there is a formula or mechanical approach to getting a random derangement. Unfortunately
1: not. Uh, The best we can do is use this algorithm, which isn't too big of a task if you're savvy with Python code or R code in your case. But it does mean that after creating this code, we can add extra restrictions to make it more interesting for the group. Like what, exactly? I was talking to a friend about this idea the other day. They raised some interesting points like, if you've been doing Secret Santa in your friend group for a, a few years running, it would be a bit boring if you had to repeat of the same person. So you could alter your algorithm to account for this and ensure that while a derangement checks a certain name is not in the same position, a certain name also doesn't get put in a p- certain position.
0: That sounds too complicated. I'd argue that takes away from the randomness of the event. Mm. Surely we could do a gag of a recurring present.
1: Maybe. Here's another one, though. What if you're in a relationship within the group and neither partner wants to get each other? Like That yet, that adds yet another level of complexity.
0: I imagine you've already coded this up already, haven't you, Sam?
1: Oh, no, no, no. I've, uh, I've got too many things on my plate as it is. Assignments catching up to me.
0: Look, I don't want to burst your bubble, Sam. But why don't you just use a secret Santa website? What? You know, a website that ensures a derangement occurs. There's no need to worry. But but we
1: we did all this lovely maths for, what, an anticlimax? No, no, no. If you want to do it good and proper, code it up and it will very quickly give you a valid solution. Not every website will account for these complexities, right? My friend had to repeat
0: this search like four or five times. hmm I'm not sure you're in a merry mood now, Sam. I am not. In any case, I hope the listeners have enjoyed this journey. Oh, uh, before you head off, Sam, I have a Christmas present for you. You do? So do I. Oh, no way. Go on, you first. All right. Well, do you remember what I said about my nightmare gift would be socks? Yeah, right. Well, um, I had a bit too many socks, and I have some here for you. <laughs> are these
1: are a pair of your old socks. No, they're new socks. No, no, don't they're worry. new. They're new. <laughs> oh, they're lovely. Wait. Is that... Not... Is that a rabbit? I don't know. Or is it a rat? I think it might be. I don't know what it is. I like it though anyway. Oh, they're cool. They're like geometric. I can never have enough socks. Right. I've got one for you. The listeners might not know, but the first episode that we actually wanted wanted to record was to do with chessboard problems. They're very interesting. It might crop up in a later series. But after reading through it lots of times, we realized that it's way too mathy for what we want this podcast to be. And so we had to very very quickly decide on a new topic to talk about and it only took Louis a few seconds to think <gasps> the infinite monkey theorem and so to be fair that was already written it was already written but like for much much later on in the series not the very first one so it wasn't polished and we had to do some heavy work on it but it stands as our kind of mascot the the monkey the infinite number of monkeys with their typewriters so to, rem- to remember that here is
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Sam has bought me a monkey. (laughs) It's adorable. Oh, my life. Oh, my God. Do you like it? Thank you. I will cherish this forever. You better do. What's his name? I'll call him Richard after the weasel program. (laughs) Oh, I love that.
1: With that. Thank you ever so much for tuning in to this very first Christmas episode of Chalkboard Ultra. We hope you found it as enlightening as we did. We'll be back in the new year with lots of exciting areas of mathematics to really
0: get knee deep into.
1: And to make sure you don't miss all of the latest news, highlights, sneak peeks on what's to come, and now Richard the Monkey, uh, please give us a follow on Instagram at Chalkboard Ultra. Keep safe,
0: keep merry, and keep well. <laughs>
1: really enjoyed this term i mean it's just to get this idea off the ground and have a first series like done complete with it's just so so lovely
0: yeah yeah the podcast has been a lot of fun to work with and uh, lots of fun to listen to again and again (laughs)
1: yeah again and again you don't know the pain that louis makes me go through with editing this i only only joke i enjoy editing it actually chris edited one of the episodes did i tell you yeah 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 yeah. so chris episode Chris edited his episode on electric fuel. Louis just staring at the monkey right now. No, It's been great, but it's really hard coming up with ideas for what this is, for, for what to talk about, because there's just so much to know about
0: everything. Yeah, have we only really scratched the surface of topics to discuss.
1: Do you think there's a chance that we'll come back to it in the future with more ideas? Well, chance
0: will be a fine thing, Sam.